1: Tuesday, May 18th, and this is the Fenway Rundown Mass Lives Red Sox podcast. I'm Chris Cotillo, coming to you from Boston, where the Red Sox just finished off a six-game homestand. With a 2-4 and record, getting swept by the Cardinals, take two of three from the Mariners. They're going to go to the West Coast this week. We'll have you covered out there. Chris Smith going to San Diego and Anaheim. Then the Red Sox will continue on to Arizona for a three-game series next week. So nine games in ten days out there. Late start times for night owls like me. That's pretty good. I know other people complain about it. Um, as we talked about last week, Sean McAdams is now a big part of the show. He's my co-host. He will be uh, on here in a second. Nick Pavetta is in the bullpen. Ryan Brazier's been DFA'd. We'll cover that and talk about you know, just some things that Sean's seen on the beat over the years. Thirty-five years of experience and obviously some pretty good stories to draw from. So, um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do some different things with this show now that Sean's aboard. You know, Sean and I, um, I think, have a pretty good rapport from covering the team together and um, you know as competitors for all these years now. Uh, we're going to be able to host a show together and I think it's going to be fun. So hope you enjoy a little longer episode than we might be used to, but, uh, my rundown time. Welcome back to the Fenway rundown podcast, mass lives, Red Sox show. Uh, I've always started this by saying I'm your host, Chris Cotillo. Now, I guess it's, I'm one of your two co-hosts, Chris Cotillo, along with Sean McAdam, who I have alongside here. And, uh, we do not have a presenting sponsor on this show but knowing the two of us uh, in the middle of May right now, if we had one, it would have to be Claridon because I'm dying. And, uh, you know, Sean is also fights the pollen battle. So I, I just made the
0: very unfortunate decision to walk to the end of my driveway to check the mail before we did this. And I'm now paying for it by, uh, by sneezing every couple of minutes. I had been hermetically sealed inside my house until then and then made the foolish decision to venture out so yeah it's basically- apologies for the sniffles in advance
1: yeah you, you were the brother from better call Saul with the <laughs> uh for a few days here but um yeah I, I guess the over under on sneezes that we have is probably about 15 over the course of this but but you're gonna have to uh bear with us because it's time to talk about basically uh big news that happened as we record this late last night I was at the ballpark when uh the Red Sox finally uh Drop the bomb that I think we've been waiting for. We talked about it last week after introducing you on the show. Nick Pavetta is going to the bullpen. He was ready to do whatever the team wants. He was very tranquil and different than he was uh, combative to both you and spring training and me last week. Uh, you know, I asked a question to Bloom last night. I asked a question to you last week. Is Nick Pavetta going to buy in? I think we both agree. He doesn't really have a choice.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's understandable disappointment and frustration on his part, um, as Heim Bloom noted last night. Most major league pitchers want to be starters, unless you know you're a high-priced closer like Diaz or Chapman or Kenley Jansen, who's had great success over a sustained period in that role and is being paid accordingly. Most guys, uh, particularly guys in their twenties. Uh, Both for competitive reasons and probably some financial ones as well, prefer to start. That's clearly the case uh, with Pavetta. It's also the case with Tanner Hauken. That may not save him in the upcoming days and weeks as the Red Sox get Garrett Whitlock back. We'll get to that later. Uh, But as far as Pavetta is concerned, yeah, look, there was understandable, I guess, frustration at the prospect of being demoted. And these guys look at it as a demotion. If you've been a starter, if you took the ball 33 times last year, as he did, and tied for the American League and game started, um, you know, you, you don't want to be put into a, a spot where you might be pitching the sixth and seventh innings instead of, you know, getting the ball and going out to start a game. But uh, frankly, his performance has led to this. He's got an ERA of about six dating back to the all-star break. So, there is no talk or there shouldn't be about this being a small sample size and a couple of bad starts. It's actually sustained underperformance on his part. And if he wants to, um, you know, uh, I I think, I don't think any of us doubt Pavetta's competitiveness. We could see that the other night in his final start where he got a strikeout to get out of a jam in the second or third inning. And uh, I think you could hear him scream in celebration in Kenmore square he was so pumped. uh, It was like, it was like
1: Tristan Casas after a walk.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, So uh, I I think once you get over the, I mean, it's kind of, you know, baseball players have to go through the 12 stages of demotion, right? There's all these uh, uh, emotions that come into it. Your pride is hurt. You wonder, you know, is the team being fair about this? Why didn't they do something else? But there comes a time when you have to accept it both for your contributions to the team and the teammates and the guys that you are, you know in the trenches with, and also um, how this relates to your career personally in the long term. Uh, maybe Pavetta comes back into the rotation at some point because of injury or underperformance to somebody else. Um, but that's down the road. For now, Uh, He has an obligation to his own career and the guys he's teammates with to perform the best he can in this new role. Yeah. And
1: look, we gripped him last week. And I think rightly so, because he came off combative. Um, I think part of that was that the two instances he did it with were with you and with me. But, you know, anytime he's been asked about it, he was very, very forceful. And it kind of came in. And we've had this discussion you know, privately, too. It kind of came off as a, do you know who I am? You know, do you know what I've done? And if you look at it, not much. And, you know, oh. I think the only thing to do now is, is to put his tail between his legs, accept it. And, and I think the most telling quote uh, from him last night was, you know, he was not available last night after throwing 98 pitches on Tuesday. But he spent the night in the bullpen, uh, you know, freezing his ass off out there. Because, in his words, they put me in the bullpen. that's where I belong. And I wanted to be with the other relievers. Like, yeah. You know, I, I, so. I think
0: that may have been largely symbolic, and a, a cynic might say that's eyewash, yeah. um, but I, I think it was genuine. I think it was like, okay, if this is what I'm doing, I'm not waiting until I'm available. I'm going to go out with my guys in the bullpen and be part of it, even though there's no chance of me pitching on this night, having thrown nearly 100 pitches 24 hours earlier. But if, even if it was only symbolic, I, th- I thought it was a, good, a show of good faith on his part.
1: Yeah, one thing that Alex Cora said a couple weeks ago in Milwaukee, he was completely kidding. It was completely in jest. We were talking about the emergency catcher situation and, uh, you know, the game where McGuire pinch hit for Wong. Uh, McGuire then took a foul tip, ended up being out for a couple of days, but had to stay in because they, you know, he didn't know who the emergency catcher was. And uh, pregame, Jemai Webster asked Alex the question, could repeat or, or Abe, I think, did. Could Kike do this for you? Could Kike catch? He he told me he didn't want to. And Alex said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Kike's paid by the Red Sox. So if we want him to catch, he's going to catch. It was a joking answer. Right. But like, that's what this is here. Like Nick Pavetta is paid by the Red Sox. He's going to do what they want him to do. And that's just at the end of the day, bottom line, the whole story. Yeah. And
0: following up on that, Chris was, you know, um, when I asked Cora uh, the, the earlier in the week about, whether he worried about buy-in to anybody who might be uh, demoted to the bullpen. And I specifically did not include any specific names. I was speaking kind of philosophically and generally. Right. We were all thinking it, though. Right. We, it was pretty clear like where this was headed, and I'm sure Cora understood that. In fact, the, the call may have already been made before uh, Pavetta's last start kind of capped things, and they made the decision after that, or at least announced the decision, but Cora immediately went to his own playing career and said, you know, do you think I loved being a utility guy in my, uh, for, for much of my playing career? Uh, no, but you know, that was my role and it was my job to make the best of it and contribute in any way I can. So I, I think also that Cora has talked a lot in the last year about getting better. And look, As celebrated as Cora is as a manager, he's a guy who won a World Series in his first year, who took his team to within two more wins of a second World Series three years later, and that's following a one-year suspension. So he's got a pretty good track record in a brief career, but it is a relatively brief career in the major leagues as a manager. And I think one of the things he's learned in the last couple of years is how to um, you know, that everybody's a little different and you have to communicate differently with different guys. And he has talked about learning how to deliver that bad news, the, the, the news that maybe the player in question doesn't necessarily want to hear, but frame it in a way that, look, I know this isn't your first choice. You'd rather start. You'd rather be playing every day to a position player or a guy that has to get sent out and option back to AAA Uh, And is crushed with disappointment. It's Cora's job to frame it in such a way that, look, you think we made a mistake? Fine. Prove it. Go show that by your performance, you deserve to be back in the role you want to be in. Mm -hmm. And I think he's gotten better at delivering that. And I suspect that was a component in Pavetta's improved attitude. Uh, and I have no doubt that he got coached up a little bit on his responses. I'm right. sure that both Heimbloom and Alex Cora uh, reminded him, hey, you're going to get asked about this. You know, the way to handle it is, and and Pavetta kind of followed that to a T. I'm not saying it was inauthentic what he said, but clearly they got everybody on the same page last night before they all spoke about this publicly.
1: And Cora made a good point. A couple of years ago, I think in a um... – Maybe a little bit um, less of a storyline at the time because it happened to be the counter move for Chris Sale coming back after a long layoff. Garrett Richards was not happy about moving to the bullpen. And, and, Mar- um, and Martin Perez, uh, right. you know, not long after that with the same situation. Right. So it's not something that they they are uh, strangers to in the last couple of years. So that, I think, is the biggest storyline on the for the uh, 24 and 20 Red Sox on this off day as they be, uh, head into a – long road trip that Chris Smith will be covering for Mass Live in San Diego, Anaheim and um, Arizona. That's, I guess, what seniority does. You get the plush trips. Your one week on the job did not land you that one, so um, apologies on that. I know you've been in uh, training hell here at Mass Live, going through every, um, you know, workshop and uh, how-to and learning all the technology and everything behind how to work here. You have not been doing your password. normal... The password for today is onboarding onboarding sorry onboarding um you've not been around the ballpark as much as you have been for uh the, I mean I was gonna say the rest of the season but every season um but obviously still watching the games just generally um you know an uneven home stand, swept by a bad team in the Cardinals but some good things obviously Paxton uh Chris Sale um the end of the Ryan Brazier era. And then, you know, the offense really coming alive against good starting pitching the last couple of nights in Seattle, with Seattle, just your general impressions of what you saw over the last six days, you know, even uh, from afar.
0: Yeah. I mean, it ends up being a, you know, a 500 uh, homestand with St. Louis and uh, no, well, two and four. Uh, sorry. Correct. Yeah. Uh, got swept by St. Louis and then yeah. take two out of three from Seattle. And it easily See, could maybe have- you didn't watch after all. <laughs> it easily could have been, uh, you know, four wins. Yeah, uh, two that were three outs away, and uh, and I think Cora um, had some insightful things to say about that and how to look at it. Look, a loss is a loss. You don't get to um, say, well, it's not really a loss because we led after eight innings. But the fact of the matter was that they clearly outplayed the Cardinals in two of those games. They got good starting pitching performances from both Paxton and Sale. Uh, everything was on the up and up. It it, it looked like that was going to be a a pretty good weekend where they go into Sunday with a chance for a sweep. They end up getting thumped that night. They don't get a good start. Uh, struggles, but I think you have to look at the big picture here and not treat it so much as a two and four homestand, but, uh, one in which they played you know, pretty good baseball, except for the two blowout losses. I mean, those were, you know, 9-1 and 10-1, no getting around that. Those are bad losses, particularly to a bad or at least a mediocre St. Louis team. Uh, Seattle, even though they've lost Rod Ray and and are not, uh, you know, perhaps playing up to their own potential, that's a pretty good lineup. Uh, And more to the point, it's a good pitching staff. And for the Red Sox to rebound off what had been a disappointing series with the Cardinals, that two wins got away from them, and take two out of three from a pretty good team, uh, I thought was a, a, a pretty good way to salvage that homestand that should have been, by all rights, a lot better.
1: And they did it against Luis Castillo, who I think we can both agree is one of the better pitchers in the game. And really, you know basically destroyed him on Tuesday night. You made an interesting comment in the press box um, that I'm going to try to never, ever bring anything you say in the press box into the podcast for um, the sake of of us keeping our jobs. But um, you made a comment then that I wanted to bring up just off the top of my head here. Luis Castillo is the guy they should have gotten. And uh, I mean, obviously, he was traded from Cincinnati to Seattle last deadline. Um, Why do you think that's the case? Well, because it's so rare that you get an
0: opportunity to get a quality, uh, starting pitcher who is in his mid twenties, who has tremendous upside and you still had, uh, I think he had what a year and a half of control. So he mm-hmm. would have been, a, he would have been free after this year as yeah. they acquired him and they, signed so them they right got there. him, they got him for a year plus, uh, but they did the right thing, uh, having committed. You know they they sent a good package of prospects and it would have been a a, a high cost for the Red Sox to have outbid uh, Seattle and anybody else. I think the, the the Yankees had some interest in Castillo as well. I think they had uh, talked to Cincinnati earlier in the season. Uh, it, it would have um, done a left a hole in the Red Sox minor league system. But to me, um, you know, maybe Bayo becomes the equivalent of Luis Castillo in a year or two uh, and he's homegrown and remains under control and remains relatively affordable for the first four or five years. But um, I, I get back to my main point. Those guys do not grow on trees guys in their mid twenties with terrific stuff and upside and some control left and the willingness to agree to an extension. So that, that somewhat mitigates that prospect cost. So if it had cost you, you know, let's face it, it they weren't going to move um, Marcel Mayer or, or some of the top prospects in there. Uh, you know, the, there's probably one or two guys that they wouldn't have given up, um, but it would have required two, three elite prospects Uh if you do that, it can't be for a rental. Uh, and the Mariners did the right thing and almost immediately getting Castillo signed to an extension. I suspect that had the Red Sox made that deal themselves, they would have tried to do the same thing. And then you've got a a legitimate one or one, a guy locked up for a number of years. Uh, the number of times those guys go on the market, you can count on one hand over a 10 year period. And to me, um, particularly for a team that has had its difficulties developing uh, quality starting pitching in its own system. Uh, when there's an opportunity
1: like that, I, I think you have to explore it more deeply than they did. Well, we can revisit that conversation when Zach gallon is available next summer and they make the move and everybody goes home happy. Right. Any particular reason you selected Zach gallon? As... No, just to, no. you know, just the Red Sox are playing the diamondbacks next week and we'll get to that. Um, We'll touch on Ryan Brazier now uh, because he deserves a minute on the podcast. Uh, he fall, That move falls under the category of AFT, about time. Um, I think that there is uh, no one that could hate on the Red Sox for, for cutting bait there. I just think that I, I can't believe it took that long. Um, he just is not a capable major league pitcher. I mean, it's as simple as that. Yeah, he hasn't been
0: for a while at the major league level. Um, I think, you know, Alex Cora did the right thing in saluting the contributions that Brazier made over the course of his career. It's it's easy to forget at this point that he came out of nowhere uh, in 2018 as a guy that nobody knew. How many times did we hear the story about you know, him closing out games in spring training and because of the nature of spring training games where the regulars are off and gone by the time the ninth inning rolls around, many of those guys had never seen Brazier pitch in a game situation when he got called up in May or early June, whenever it was in 2018 and how surprised they were, Um, you know, a guy that had pitched in Japan who had been all over the place and, you know, was, was throwing, uh, you know, holding tryouts, uh, or, or you know, a, a showcase for himself uh, that February and the Red Sox send somebody else to take a look at him and end up signing him. And, you know, that's the the kind of thing that you have to get a little lucky with. There, there might be 10 of those guys that you take a look at and only one of them pans out. And Ryan Brazier sure panned out that year in 2018. He was huge in that postseason, both against the Yankees and then deeper into the postseason in the subsequent rounds with Houston and the Dodgers as they won the world series. Uh, And there were other stretches of time, certainly back in 21 where he contributed more and was able to be an important member of that, that uh, relief group. But we haven't seen that Ryan Brazier in a while. And I think people are always going to rue the fact that they exposed somebody last winter to a rule five or designated for assignment, somebody, other than Brazier, and we'll look back and regret that. Maybe that's true. But when a guy uh, makes those kind of contributions, I think he buys himself a little more time. Did they wait too long? Probably. Um, but, you know, it's it's easy to jump on the guy because he hasn't pitched well, uh, really, over the last two seasons, other than a few, uh, you know, hot stretches. Uh, it was time. It was probably past time. But it's also worth remembering that, that he had kind of a lottery ticket existence where out of nowhere, he becomes a huge contributor to a world championship team. And the Red Sox saw the
1: behind or the under the hood stuff, the stuff, which they always say, you see it, you see the stuff. Um, And, you know, Haim had said on this pod and, and elsewhere, if he was from another franchise fans would be wondering why we didn't pick this guy up with all the under the hood stuff. That makes me kind of think, here's a hot take, a Fenway rundown hot take. Red Sox might have a little trade interest in Ryan Brazier and see if they can turn it into something. Doesn't seem like it could be possible, but um, I'll go on record saying it might be here. We're going to uh, – go ahead. Well,
0: yeah, I wouldn't rule that out. I mean, certainly the money is not going to be off-putting for anybody. You're not taking on a long-term deal. You're talking about a guy that – you know, uh, makes less than $2 million a year. You've already blown through about a quarter of that. So, you know, you're talking about an investment of a little more than a million bucks at this point. Um, So there's no great financial risk. And we all know that just as the Red Sox decided to roll the dice on him a few years ago without the body of work at the major league level that he's since contributed, uh, somebody out there might look and say, yeah, we can fix him. Um, we're not going to give up a ton, but maybe you get a warm body someplace in the minor leagues, a prospect for them, uh, and somebody decides to take a flyer.
1: Yeah. So that, that's the situation that will be resolved by, by the end of the week. Um, and, and we'll leave, we'll leave the Brazier talk there. So we're going to introduce a new segment that I, uh, we've, we've talked about a little bit, um, off air and, you know, I, I don't know. I forget the exact, that's is it exactly 35 years you've been covering the team. Yeah, this is year 35. Okay. So uh, in that time, you've encountered characters. You've encountered a lot of people. Uh, You have stories about everybody. So I'm going to try to, on every podcast we have, give you a name, and you're going to just have to tell me the first story that comes to mind about that player. Um, Okay. We can flip it sometimes for my stories about guys over the last five years. It's a much more limited pool. Um, we're going to go way back in some cases, and we're going to go not too far back for this one. I think we'll start with an easy one, a guy that's going to be in the news a lot this weekend as the Red Sox play the Padres, but what interaction or moment or behind the scenes situation comes to mind when I mention the word Xander Bogarts? Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to recall two. Uh,
0: one was him making his major league debut in San Francisco. Uh, late in the 2013 season I think it was August maybe uh, and he was I think a teenager I think he was 19 years old yeah uh, maybe about to turn 20 that October right Um, and just how uh, I think awestruck he was to be in the big leagues and you know you think about somebody growing up in Aruba and you know signing uh, as an international free agent at 15 and a half, 16 years old. And three years later, here he is in a beautiful ballpark in San Francisco and part of a team that was steamrolling toward a pennant and a world series. And, you know, he was a guy that while he wasn't necessarily going to play every day, it was pretty clear he was going to contribute. And he sat in the dugout and we talked to him for the first time uh, and our good friend Johnny Miller uh, that day and for uh, probably the next couple of weeks mistakenly called him Xavier as he tried to, weeks, get to
1: years a decade whatever um,
0: as he tried to get used to what was admittedly a somewhat unusual name in Xander um, but I remember him just sort of being awestruck and probably scared half to death and and yet, you know, we saw him grow into a, uh, a very um, composed, uh, mature guy who uh, embraced Boston and all it was and the leadership that came with that. We know that you and I know that he was a guy that almost always uh, was there to talk after tough losses, a team and a losing streak. And I always remember, you know, how uh, – you know, while he answered in measured tones, you could see the pain he was feeling when the team wasn't doing well. Um, you know, it, it certainly affected him, uh, but he never uh, shirked his responsibility to serve as a team spokesman and, and, and kind of be available to us. The other um, is in the 2020 season, the pandemic year, where we had virtually uh, no connection with the players. We were not allowed to be anywhere in the ballpark other than in the press box we had to take that's
1: that's when michael chavis and i bumped into each other on a ramp and he asked if we'd get in trouble for it
0: right yeah michael chavis always had some interesting questions to ask yes he did yes he did Um, but uh in in 2020 you know people remember the pandemic and all the rules that were in effect to try to Keep the game going. Um, you know that we had mass everywhere. We could either walk up the ramp or take a specially designated elevator to to the fifth floor. We couldn't use the same elevator that the players were using to get to the suites when they were using suites as their own kind of mini clubhouses. Uh, we couldn't watch batting practice either on the field or even down in the lower bowl at Fenway. Uh, these guys. Our only connection to them uh, was as you and I are doing now via Zoom. Uh, mm-hmm. We could watch them play from the press box five floors above at Fenway, uh, but our only interaction with them was over Zoom and video. Uh, that was pregame, postgame, off days, whatever it was. We went just about the entire 57 game schedule there in 2020 without ever, ever, ever interacting with the players, except one night when I was leaving Fenway um, and walking out onto Jersey street, um, coming out of the player's parking lot. And I think he had a place nearby at the time, lived in a nearby apartment building. And I was walking to the media parking lot.
1: It was not was... the one I lived in. I can tell you that. No, I'm
0: sure it wasn't. No. Uh, there was uh, Xander Bogarts about five feet away from me, and he kind of, you know, did a double take and said, oh, hi, Sean. And I said, Xander, how are you? And we we kept our distance. Uh, We didn't get too close. We tried to observe the social distancing. But I remember it being just a real surreal moment. This is a guy that I might have walked past. You know, hundreds of times during the course of a regular year in the clubhouse, in the dugout, in the tunnel between the clubhouse and dugout, just a quick, Hey, or a fist bump on the field coming out of the batting cage, pulling them aside for a quick question. We had none of that. We just had this awkward, Oh, it's you moment on the corner of Van Ness and Jersey street at about midnight or 1230. It was a quick, Hey, good to see you. Boy, isn't this weird? Hang in there talk to you later it probably didn't last more than 30 or 45 seconds but I'll always have that memory of Xander and the weird circumstances uh, under which we met which was probably the closest I got to any player that entire year
1: right and I get stuck with Michael Chavis on the ramp so that's uh, a good one for you I won that one yeah congrats uh we'll do another segment a quick one here uh, Red Sox as I aren't, mentioned aren't we aren't we full of brimming with
0: ideas. today. We
1: are. We have so many. The the reinvented Fenway Rundown, a a McAdam-Catillo production, um, sponsored by Clarendon. Um, The uh, Red Sox are going to three cities, two National League cities, which potentially limits the amount of stories we can tell here. We're going to do something called On the Road when the Red Sox are going away. Kind of the same thing as I just said, but just pull a story uh, out of a hat because this is a family-friendly show. A hat. I know. Um, and when I mention you know, a city, what comes to mind from, from covering games there, mine, uh, I'll start us with San Diego. Um, I, uh, will tell an interesting story. Kind of one of the really early moments in my career. I was not covering the Red Sox back then. I was covering baseball nationally, and you can put that in air quotes for SB nation, um, Basically, it was never credentialed to cover regular season games, but I moonlighted at the winter meetings in the All-Star game and um, was the usually the youngest person around and perhaps the most annoying. You know, I'm not the youngest, but still the most annoying. Uh, at the 2016 All-Star game, um, there was a moment where David Ortiz, playing his last All-Star game, had a moment on the mound with Jose Fernandez uh, in San Diego Petco Park they acknowledged each other before the at-bat and it was kind of this nice touching moment of you know passing of the torch from a retiring star to one of the game's brightest stars in the clubhouse after I was able to interview You know, I was still in college and didn't really know what I was doing I kind of do now uh interview Jose Fernandez at his locker about you know how much David Ortiz meant to him um and and all that type of stuff and I was just kind of reading the story today as I was preparing for this and um you know, one of my old SB Nation bylines. But the respect between David Ortiz and Jose Fernandez culminates in an MLB All-Star at-bat. And just kind of being, you know, proud is one of the first kind of features I had written. And I'd gone up to this guy in his locker and there weren't a lot of people you know, talking to Fernandez. And obviously, uh, you know, that was July of 2016. And um he died in September 2016. So uh kind of for me, the chance to interview him and uh, have that experience kind of stands out San Diego wise, also a lot of winter meetings, a lot of, uh, very, very crazy. Um, I think three of the maybe eight or nine winter meetings I've covered have been there. You know, this year we were there when Xander left and then I, you know, we, we, can recount that being Actually, one of the craziest,
0: we weren't there when Xander left, but that's another matter. You weren't,
1: I was on. Oh, I, okay. My...
0: Well, yeah, I, I, had gotten as far as Charlotte, North Carolina, your second home, yes. um, uh, on my way of on my way home that day uh, having missed my connection from Charlotte to Boston, only to find out that Xander was indeed signing with the Padres and writing that story at about one o'clock in the morning in my hotel room in Charlotte. But yeah.
1: Yeah. that day, that special day where the Red Sox signed Jansen had a crazy rule five draft signed Yoshida thought they were going to, we thought they were going to sign Bogarts that whole day and ended up signing or ended up losing him as my plane took off. There was nobody in the world that I had more disdain for than the wonderful Cooper Smith, who is Chris Smith's wonderful baby boy, who is the reason that Chris was on paternity leave. And I was working the beat alone uh, in yep. December and January. Of course, don't dislike him now, but it's, uh, it was the the way it was back then. Those are, those are my kind of two San Diego memories. I've been to Anaheim once. It wasn't too memorable. Um, Otani pitched one night and that was fine. Uh, we were in the press box getting blinded, uh, because the press box is out in right field and the sun, uh, when it sets, it's right in your eyes the whole time. I remember a very angry Ian Brown, uh, making us move. Um, but I'm sure you have a lot better Anaheim stories than that. Um, I, I have Anaheim stories and I have San Diego stories.
0: Can I do one of each? Yeah, go ahead. So, the San Diego story this is a little peek behind the curtain. This happened to be probably. Uh, better than a decade ago. And I think it was the first time the Red Sox had been um, to the new ballpark in San Diego. Um, I had been to Jack Murphy Stadium uh, to for the 98 World Series with the Yankees and Padres. And that was a cool moment when Trevor Hoffman uh, came out of the bullpen and they would play Hell's Bells at ear splitting volume at Jack Murphy Stadium. The only Major League Baseball Park ever named in honor of a sports writer, by the way. So that should hold a special place in our heart. That's until Um, they
1: that's until they change Sunway. Right. Right. Um Chris Smith Stadium.
0: (laughs) Chris Smith Field at Sunway Park. So
1: I will I'll interrupt because the um there was a very uh very nice generous Carolina North, University of North Carolina donor apparently named Chris Smith and he passed away and it was just you know I now that I'm caught up on the story it makes sense and the football stadium is named Keenan Stadium but it's now Chris Smith Field at Keenan Stadium and so the when they I didn't know that this was happening and during the first game one season all of a sudden in big letters behind the end zone Chris Smith Field and I thought I was going out of my mind watching uh the home What's game yeah exactly all right right, go
0: ahead before I was so rudely interrupted the first trip into uh the new ballpark in San Diego I'm standing on the third baseline Jed Hoyer then assistant general manager with the Red Sox and I are talking and the subject of John Henry comes up and uh he wanted to know sort of what John Henry's relationship was with the media and how accessible he was and this was at a time when John was more accessible John who and Uh, huh john who john henry principal owner boston red sox i hope to meet him one day look 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 him up on wikipedia yeah maybe i'll meet so uh jed says to me um you know i i I see you guys talk on the field the times and you know he seems to get quoted in your stuff and you know it seems like you have a pretty good relationship with him and i said yeah you know i do we you know we've been back and forth on some things and some things I've written or said he hasn't been crazy about, but generally I have pretty good access to him and, and, uh, in a decent relationship or a proper relationship for a team, uh, somebody covering the team. I said, my only complaint is that John often is trying to get me to, uh, is off was, was in the habit of suggesting story topics for me to write, you know, you should write about this problem in major league baseball, or you should do a story on this. And, you know, some of them were kind of self, it wasn't self promotional on his part. It wasn't like he wanted me to write more about him or more be positive about him. It was other topics or people that he found interesting and wanted to highlight. I said, you know, I said, that just bugs me a little bit that he does that. So we're having this conversation, not 30 seconds later, John Henry appears On the third base side, sees Jed and I talking, comes over, says hi to Jed, shakes his hand, says hi to me, shakes my hand, and within 10 seconds says to me, you should do a story on David Glass, who was then the owner and CEO of the Kansas City Royals, and talking about a small market owner and trying to make it, uh, you know, in the, in the sport where, uh, you know, it's not always easy being a small market owner. And Jed, Jed started laughing so hard that he had to excuse himself and walk away because the very thing that I had complained about uh, immediately uh, became front and center within seconds of John Henry ap- uh, 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 appearing. The other story that I have from Anaheim is, uh, this goes back to the early 90s, Um, Joe Morgan is managing the team. We had just been down on the field, uh, during batting practice. And, uh, it got to the point where, you know, usually an hour before game time, we were kicked off the field and had to leave and go back up to the press box. And, uh, we went back up to the press box and we're just about to take our seat. And I am maybe six feet away from the late Nick Cafardo of the Boston Globe, who is looking down on the field and all of a sudden has this look on his face and Nick is looking out and pointing at the batting cage and screaming holy shit look at this and I looked out and Mo Vaughn and Mike Greenwell were wrestling one another and not in a playful way as the entire Red Sox dugout emptied and attempted to pull them apart uh, for those who remember, it seemed that Mike Greenwell, um, who was not above, punching above his weight, literally and figuratively, and kind of being, not always holding true um, to... Uh, uh, what. No, it was, excuse me, I had that wrong. Um, Mo Vaughn had made a comment about, uh, I think... Mike Greenwell had a hickey or something on his neck and Mo was teasing him from uh, the side of the batting cage. And uh, Greenwell took exception to being called out by a young player. I don't know if Mo was a rookie at this point or not. And World War III broke out with the two of them throwing punches and wrestling and the entire team uh, trying to break it up. So we immediately went back downstairs to see who we could get to talk about what had just happened. We were not allowed back on the field. The best we could do would be to get close to the clubhouse and hope that maybe we could get someone coming in or off the field. And uh, at one point, we walked toward the clubhouse, which happened to have a wide open door through which we could see into Joe Morgan's office where Mike Greenwell was sitting and obviously complaining to Joe Morgan that Movon had been disrespectful to him uh, with this um, extracurricular verbal stuff. And Greenwell turned and saw us and immediately screamed, get the bleep out of here uh, and slammed the manager's door. And we had to wait really until after the game for Joe Morgan to provide a sanitized and, uh, a, a, you know, kind of downplaying, oh, these things happen with teams and no big deal. But it was quite something to see an intramural fight take place among Red Sox players in the middle of batting practice
1: right below us. August 25th, 1991, according to Google. I okay. was negative four in two months. So yep. as you often say, uh, I
0: there is Red Sox history before your birth, Chris, and occasionally we'll, re- we will reference these things.
1: All right. I'm can't contribute much. Uh, I don't have an Arizona one. Do you?
0: I don't. Although I, I immediately, uh, you know, I, I, look down on a ballpark that has a swimming pool as a major feature to it. I, I don't think that is as Abner Doubleday envisioned the game, uh, I know that they have to put some modern touches into it, but that just always seemed kind of a weird thing. If you if you want to go swimming, why are you paying money to go to the ballpark? But, you know,
1: that and uh, the, zone, I guess. the Jacksonville Jaguar Stadium as well. We'll finish with this. We want to do prediction time every week when we're kind of at one of these the kind of bookend spots in between a homestand and a road trip. Red Sox, as I said, three in San Diego, three in Anaheim, an off day and three in Phoenix. I think this team comes crashing down to earth in this trip a little bit. I think, you know, San Diego is going to come to life in front of what should be a rocking ballpark there. Um, You know, Anaheim, I always think they're way better than they are. They never are. Um, I I know that, you know, Arizona is um, not one of your top contenders in the national league, but you know, I think that this is, this is a, I'm going to go three and six road trip for the Red Sox. Okay. uh, Back down to earth trip before they come home. Um, just feels like, you know, I know they played well the last couple of days against Seattle, but it just feels like they're due for one of these and the travel sucks, you know? I mean, it's uh it's almost a built-in excuse, but um I know there's off days, but the time change and all that type of stuff, I think there's a distraction factor this week with with Bogarts on the other side. So, I wouldn't be surprised to see a stinker here for the next 9 or 9 or 10 days. Yeah, it look, it's going to be a tough trip. Um three teams uh, one
0: under 500 in San Diego, but talented, uh, one right about 500 in Anaheim that has, uh, you know, come back down to earth recently in Arizona. I think a team kind of on the come, but in a very tough division, um, I, I'm going to go a hair better than you, but I, I agree that it's going to be a losing trip and I'm going to say four and five.
1: So we're only one off from each other. I'm not sure what the wager is here. It's up to me. It's an IPA yard house, but um you know, well, I, I guess we'll I'm not to figure be requesting it. an IPA if I win, as you no. know, an or a modelo with a lime, or whatever. Here you go. Whatever those who are soft like to drink. Uh, we had a meeting earlier today where Jim Pignatello, our wonderful sports director, and Meredith Perry and, and Matt Votors mentioned this before. We need a way to end the podcast so people know that it's done because sometimes it's like a hard cut. And if you're listening to another podcast after this, apparently it's harder. Uh, to figure that out Um, we don't have that yet so it's over